and by America. It's time for real television as MMM Carpets brings you movies till the sun comes up. Welcome to Movies Till Dawn, a new podcast that's a safe space for filmmakers to talk about the fascinating and exasperating and always unusual and never quite the same thing twice process of creating motion pictures. I'm Raymond DeFelita, and I'm the show's Toastmaster General. So what do we really know about Otto Preminger? We'll get to that. Let's back up a little bit, and let's discuss what I consider... Uh, the internet's great gift to mankind, and I'm talking about YouTube. Uh, YouTube, I've lost hours, days, probably if you add it up by now, years to YouTube. Uh, just, just surfing around, and 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 you know, and YouTube gets to know you, and it, it knows what you want, and suddenly it, it starts turning up videos from the ash cans of uh, of culture, stuff you never thought you'd see. Uh, and you know, I, I can, I can lose a lot of time on YouTube. A friend of mine calls it snorting YouTube and, um, it's a perfect analogy because yeah, you have a lot of fun while you're doing it. And at the end of the whole thing, you feel wasted and exhausted. You promise yourself you'll never do it again. And there you are snorting YouTube again, you know, somewhere in the, in the near future. Anyway, I preface all of this because for some reason, Otto Preminger, the, uh, the, the notorious producer-director, the, the Viennese-accented and, and famous and big and tall and bald Otto Preminger, uh, was on my mind. I, I think I must have seen a, a trailer, I think it, exactly, it was Anatomy of a Murder was going to show on TCM. And uh, I watched the trailer, and I've seen the film so many times, and it's one of my favorites. I have two favorite Otto Preminger movies, and that's one of them. Uh, so I started searching, uh, and I turned up, some interviews with Otto Preminger, and he's a taciturn and difficult interview subject. He doesn't suffer fools, and let's face it, most interviewers are fools. Uh, but I found one uh, uh, kind of interview Q&A lecture that he gave at UCLA in the late 1960s, December of 68, uh, and I think it's quite interesting, and I want to share excerpts of it. Because like I said, there's a lot of great audio out there by filmmakers that, that you just, or you're not going to find it easily. And, and uh, anyway, so that, that's my mission with this episode of my podcast is, is Otto Preminger. And, you know, listen, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know who he is. But let me give you a, a little, a short version, Otto on an aspirin tablet, let's call it. Uh, he was a producer-director. His famous movies are Exodus and Anatomy of a Murder and Laura, one of the great film noirs, uh, The Man with the Golden Arm, Frank Sinatra. Uh, and he was really one of the first branded directors. Uh, back before directors became rock stars in the late 60s and the 70s, there were really only a few directors that the public at large knew. Uh, probably the first was Frank Capra, who was on the Time magazine cover in the 1930s. The most famous, the most visible, of course, was Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, but Otto Preminger became a, a, a well-publicized figure, uh, and he acted the part of Otto Preminger. He was a big personality. He was big and tall and bald, and he was famously difficult and filled with temper and demands and, uh, you know, the stories of his abuse of actors and crew were legendary. One of them, one of my favorite auto stories is 
<clears throat> his sets were very tense places, and apparently uh, one day on a set there was a very tense actor standing around, and Otto walked right up to him and got in his face, and he yelled, Relax! So that's Otto. Uh, he, he was born and raised in Vienna. He, he came from the theater. He moved to L.A. and crashed Hollywood in the 30s. I won't give you his whole history. Uh, he had a fascinating and up-and-down relationship with Daryl F. Zanuck at 20th Century Fox. And you can read all about that in a wonderful interview that he gave Peter Bogdanovich. It's reprinted in, in Peter's book, Who the Devil Made It, which is a terrific book. It's interviews with dozens of directors, uh, indispensable uh, book for your film library. Um, but eventually, what Otto Preminger really became well-known for was tackling controversial material. Uh, and this came about maybe by accident or maybe sort of an accident that he planned, uh, but it became sort of his trademark. Uh, so, for instance, Man with a Golden Arm, a movie about heroin addiction in 1956 when nobody was making that movie, or Anatomy of a Murder, which deals with a rape. He uses the word rape. Nobody ever said or talked about rape in the movies. Uh, in Advising Consent, his, his, his Washington uh, DC movie, uh, there's a, a, a not at all hidden subtext and subculture portrayed of, uh, of homosexual, uh, what was then the homosexual underworld. Um, all of this stuff, very dicey for its time, and, and he loved being the, the guy who, who flew in the face of the norms. Um, that all started when, after years of being a Fox contract director, he decided to strike out on his own. He uh, had directed a Broadway play called The Moon is Blue, a very slight comedy. He decided to make it into a movie, and uh, the story basically is of two men in the movie. It's William Holden and David Niven trying to seduce a virgin a word never before used, a concept not discussed uh, in in movies. And, you know, in the 50s and, and before, a movie needed to have a production seal of approval, uh, which the Breen office, they were called after the, the, the man who ran it, Joseph Breen. Um, and they examined your script and told you what you could or couldn't say. And then when you made the movie, they'd look at the movie again and tell you what you had to cut and what you, you know, you, it was hard to get around them. But... Preminger did not get approval from them. He decided to make the movie anyway, using the word virgin and the situation of, of, of the whole comedy. Then he showed them the movie, and they said, absolutely not, we already told you. No seal of approval unless you cut all this stuff. So Preminger decided, the hell with it. Let's re release the movie without the, the production seal of approval. He found some theaters willing to risk it. And guess what? Not only did nobody care that it didn't have that seal of approval, people actually were eager to see it. And The Moon is Blue became a hit, uh, and Otto Preminger was no longer a contract director. He was an independent filmmaker. He financed that movie with a bank loan and got United Artists to, uh, to, to release it. And he made the most of the publicity, letting people know that he was determined to break down the barriers of, of censorship in movies and entertainment. Uh, and so that really became something that was was very much, you know, you know the, the 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 hallmark of Preminger. Um, so in this interview that I'm going to play you, he he talks a good deal about censorship, and I I feel like one of the most interesting parts of of hearing it now is he's talking in the late '60s, and he's talking a lot about how democracy crumbles. And I'm recording this in mid October 2020.
And that's all I'm going to say about that uh, a few weeks away from a, a stunningly dangerous election. So Preminger, uh, like I said, he, he, he's interesting to me for all these different reasons, but, but he's especially interesting to me for the following reason. Uh, and that is that I am uh, in possession of his doormat. It sits about 30 feet away from me as I record this. It's a large rubber black doormat with the letter P on it uh, in white, presumably for Preminger, let's hope. Uh, And I have it. I have Otto Preminger's doormat. It sat in front of his townhouse on East 64th Street in New York City for many years. Uh, And I'll tell you how I wound up with it. Uh, It's an interesting story. In fact, it's something of a film noir uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a crime. It was planned. The crime was executed. There was tension. There was angst. There were, you know, there were, there were things that might not have resolved. There, there were things that really have never resolved. There were murky motives and, and uh, you know, and, 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 and guilt and a kind of fatalistic sense of crime as something that we live with and occasionally commit. Uh, and, and, and that's my film or tale that I'm going to tell you about how I came into possession of Otto Preminger's doormat. But first, I'm going to force you to listen to, to some of this, this interview uh, that he gave at UCLA in 1968. I think you'll find it very interesting. Um, oh, one other thing I do want to tell you. Uh, in fact, although this was done in December 68, uh, and I was four and a half years old at that time, this is me interviewing Otto. Uh, it, it's funny, I'd forgotten I did it until I found it on YouTube, but, but I, I conducted this interview. Uh, like I said, I was four and a half. And it's, one of the strange things is that I, I already sounded like I sound now. My voice had matured very early. Um, so perhaps I was precocious in at least that sense. So enjoy me talking with Otto Preminger in December of 68. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the great Otto Preminger. Whenever I am introduced, it is at once a nice, flattering thing, and I feel very happy. But it also is, uh, makes me a little uncomfortable because uh, I get perhaps a little more credit than I deserve. And there's one thing, because I think it is important to you and important to me, that I would like to uh, correct or at least explain. I had several run-ins with censors, our own censors in the motion picture industry, which really are not censors, but it's a a code administration where we have a code of self-restraint, and also with censors, all kinds of censors, the police in Chicago, and I always fought these censors and never anticipated, for instance, when I made The Moon is Blue, which I directed, and produced on Broadway as a play, and it ran three years and had 
eight road companies and played Chicago 18 months and almost all cities in the United States that when I put it on film that there would be so much uh, noise about it because the difference between the film version and the theatrical version was only uh, that uh, the people people could see it now for at that time one dollar and twenty five cents instead of paying six dollars in New York, and the reason I defended my right of free expression was never because I felt pretentious enough and silly enough about my work to feel that a little comedy like The Moon is Blue would uh, be uh, suffering so much or that it would be sacrilegious to cut a few lines. That is not the point. My point is that all of us, whether we are movie producers or uh, writers or stage uh, producers or whatever we do, or students, that in our area, in our jurisdiction, we not only have the right, but the duty to defend this most precious right that we have and that we have in the United States perhaps more guaranteed by the, uh, by the uh, Constitution than any other country and that we have uh, still more alive than in any other country because I don't think there is another country that would permit uh, dissidents in case the country were at war to come out and express their opinions against the war. In other countries, these dissidents would probably be treated as traitors. But it is very important, no matter on which side you are and uh, what your beliefs are, to defend this right of free expression. Because the minute this right starts to sh these rights start to shrink and eventually to disappear, uh, we, uh, the, the free government, the democracy as we know it, is in danger. Because no totalitarian government, whether from the right or from the left, can exist without thought control. And censorship is nothing else but controlling your thoughts and the expression of these thoughts because it starts with people telling you what you can say or what you can write or what you can put in a movie and that those are might be very frivolous and little things but it then continues until you have the same uh, thought control that you had in Germany uh, during the Hitler regime or in Russia and I was in both countries and I saw it in both and this leads to fear and leads to injustice and totalitarian government which I think none of us want. I only wanted to say this thing in correcting, you know, um, I mean in, it is not a special credit that I deserve for having fought censorship. It is something that I think is my duty and the duty of anybody who has a chance to do it. Now, I don't like to give lectures, as I announced before. 
because I don't know what you might be interested in, but I'd be, to the best of my ability, happy to answer any questions that you pose. Uh, Maestro, uh, or Mr. Preminger, can I call you Maestro? What, what do you think your best films are? I'm just curious. The question, uh, which is my best, are my best films and why, is something that I cannot answer. You know, I want to express to you that I explain to you that when I make a film, I concentrate on my work, you know, because it's my life. I love my work and I do nothing else but think of this film. When the film is finished, and I've seen it several times with audiences, and an audience adds something to the film which nobody can really anticipate while he makes a film, two things happen. A, I then feel that I could invariably, in, any, in every case, that I could have actually uh, done much better. If I, if I had the chance to do it over, I could do it better. And B, I then detach myself from the film. I don't even think of it anymore because I couldn't go on working if I would think of my old films. And there's a funny thing that happened. I was uh, one time, uh, about two years ago, ready to go out with my wife. We were dressing, and while I was waiting for her turn on television, they played an old film of mine called Fallen Angel. And it was just in the middle, and I suddenly realized that I didn't remember how that film was going to end, that I really didn't know the story anymore. And because we had to leave to go to the theater, and I couldn't wait, I still don't know how it ends. <laughs> Mr. Preminger, uh, well, Otto, may I, may I call you Otto? Uh, anyway, Otto. Tell me what you think of the rating system. It, it's it's a new thing now. Here we stand in, in 1968, and the, the MPAA has uh, imposed these letters upon us. G for general audience, uh, PG parental guidance, R, X, etc. Uh, what do you think? Uh, is this censorship? Well, this is uh, this is not censorship. You know, it, it would be too long and too technical uh, to explain because I feel two ways about it, but. One thing, it is really a means of the producers, of us, to warn parents. You see, I have two children uh, who are eight years old, they're twins, and I let them see anything. Because I feel that if I succeed to explain to them, you know, as I educate them, what is good and bad, what is wrong and right, what is good taste and bad taste, they don't need any protection by anything, they can see anything. And if I don't succeed, I don't think that any protection, any uh, 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 group that would say don't uh, let children go into the, the, this film until until they're at least 16, is useless. You know, I mean, I think that all this uh, uh, outcry against uh, sex and violence in pictures is ridiculous because I think that motion pictures and television reflect uh, society. I think our society has become more violent and the cure for it, you know, should be looked at, at the roots, you see, and certainly it's not by hitting people over the head and uh, because that is more violence. And I also, uh, as far as sex goes, we are just freer, you know, everybody uh, has become, I mean, if you uh, uh, check with uh, your older friends or parents, uh, you will find that 20 years ago certain things were just not mentioned in uh, mixed society. I think it is much better now. I don't see why there should be any secret about anything. You can still feel 
you know, that perhaps uh, uh, homosexuality is not an ideal uh, thing, you know. But you, uh, there's no reason why a film or a drama or a book or your conversation should not uh, sh should not deal with it. Uh, you see, this thing it it, it certainly uh, doesn't uh, necessarily mean that you recruit more homosexuals. And even if that were the case, I think in a free society, people sh should certainly be able to discuss and think and see on films and everywhere anything they want to. But what good is this freedom if we can't use it? See, now I don't, I think that uh, that pointless violence and pointless nudity or pointless uh, sex uh, is uh, is boring. I, I, I was uh, here last week for a couple of days and I walked on the Sunset Strip and they are playing there uh, the 16 millimeter cinematic, a film by Andy Warhol. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's called uh, The Naked Restaurant. And I went in to see it and I sat there and uh, for an hour and a half I saw three completely nude people, a nude woman and uh, three nude men. They were you know, disgusting. It was obviously like he usually does it at lip. They just talked and walked around and they touched each other sometime. And, and in one scene they were together, and one, the woman and one man were together in a bathtub. After some time it became terribly boring to me, you know, because it was pointless. And after some time, I had time to see that this girl, who originally was quite attractive, she became less and less attractive to me. I had so many chances to study the faults in her uh, body. <laughs> and, and the man, you know, became more and more charmless. I'm not particularly interested in nude men anyway. You know? But I mean, when they were, the, the, the way they carried themselves, it seemed so pointed, and I left after an hour and a half because, because I was bored. I was not shocked. I, I just think that the experiment didn't work. I think that if it, there had been one scene where it made a story point, where the girl uh, undressed or the man undressed, uh, that would be interesting and I think very uh, right. But to, to just walk around in the nude for the sake of being nude, it's just like if we all undressed here, you know, I think after half an hour, first it might be a shock, but after half an hour we would be pretty, uh, at least I would be pretty disinterested in all of you new. <laughs> on the other hand, when I look around here and see you uh, dress, some of you, I might be curious. <laughs> you know, Otto, the other night my mother and father and I went to see the new Stanley Kubrick film, 2001 A Space Odyssey. They fell asleep right away. They'd had a couple of drinks. Um, but I, even though I'm, you know, a kid, uh, I, I thought it was wonderful. I stayed awake. I watched the whole thing, mesmerizing. I wonder if you, as an older and thus more traditional filmmaker, uh, well, first of all, have you seen it? And secondly, if you did, do you get it? What do you think of 2001? Well, I, uh, I, uh, the the first uh, the, the space odyssey I like very much. I mean, I, I say this as a, an audience. I'm not a critic, and I I like very much. I admire, first of all, technically the incredible perfection that Mr. Kubrick uh, reached, and I and this is very difficult. He worked really for five years, day and night, only on this film. I. Uh, 
also found the film fascinating is that I saw it twice. I have, like everybody probably has uh, certain questions or, uh, I mean, I, you never liked anything 100%, but I think it is a very, very superior movie. And it might interest you that when this movie was shown to the uh, executives of MGM for the first time, uh, they, uh, uh, at least the majority of them, very seriously uh, thought of uh, committing suicide. <laughs> because, and a uh, few of them walked out because they really hated it. And when the picture opened in New York and got uh, a majority of bad reviews, they uh, felt even worse about it, and the picture didn't do too well in the beginning, but then eventually, through word of mouth and through the fact that people liked it, and mostly young people liked it, became one of the biggest hits in the history of movies. Now the uh, MGM people like it very much. <laughs> I know you just finished uh, Skidoo, uh, your, your new movie, and among many other stars in it, you have Groucho Marx playing the role of God. And I've heard behind the scenes that you and Groucho didn't like each other. In fact, you pretty much fucking hated each other. Talk to me a little bit about Groucho. Well, I mean, no, not uh, really. I mean, first of all, his whole part was done in three days. And he is, uh, uh, I mean, he has problems uh, in remembering lines by now. You know, he's, he's much older than he looks. And when you are patient with him, it, it works. Why do you particularly ask about problems with Groucho Marx? No. So do you think... Groucho really wanted to be God? <laughs> well, every actor likes to play God. <laughs> I could have had anybody playing. Otto, let's be honest. Yes? Who are you? Otto Preminger artist or Otto Preminger businessman? Well, I uh, hope, you know, uh, that I'm not a businessman. You know, I mean, I have all my life uh, followed the principle that I like to do what I think I want to do at the moment, and I succeeded with it. I never worry about money too much, and I've made enough money so far to live very, very comfortably. So I don't worry about it. And to speak about myself as an artist also seems pretentious. If you mean as a movie maker, I must tell you that I cannot calculate the success, and I don't try to calculate the success of a film that I make. I make a film the way I feel, you know, I mean, I choose the story because I am interested. I choose the actors because I think they are right. It's all very subjective. And therefore, you might, uh, if you want to be generous, say it is an art, it is artistic. But I do this with the hope that my enthusiasm would eventually become contagious through my medium, you know, on the screen and get other people enthusiastic and they would like what I have done. And sometimes I, um, my judgment is right and sometimes I'm wrong and I have either success or failure. And that is the excitement of my profession. But uh, there is no, I mean, I see, I don't believe that anybody can say, you know, we are going to take now a few uh, parts of sex and a few parts of violence and, and the love story and the star and when we mix this all up it'll become a success. As a matter of fact I can't tell you now as Kidu is finished and uh, 
whether people will come to see it or not. I hope they'll see it. You know, it's something that, that, that is impossible for me to judge, and therefore I don't worry about it. I worry now about my next film, which is based on a book that I bought six months ago uh, in manuscript. And since these are the small uh, compensations or, or the small uh, dividends that you get, uh, I bought, when I bought this book, everybody thought I was crazy. It is called Tell Me That You Love Me, Julie Moon. It is the first book by a young woman called Marjorie Kellogg. I bought it in manuscript, and it is a very strange story about three handicapped people who meet in a hospital, a girl and two men, and decide to try to make a life together, when the, a life together and not mix in society where they expected best pity and charitable, uh, you know, uh, tactful avoidance because they are all crippled and they want to try to make their own lives and it shows courage and this, uh, and I liked it very much. Now the book was published about four weeks ago and received unanimously uh, rave reviews from every book critic in the country and it is selling very well, which nobody expected and that is what I mean, a little evidence you feel justified in your judgment and now people don't think I'm crazy anymore. So how did you get started in film anyway? I didn't get started in films, you know, when I was uh, very young, as a matter of the age of nine I felt I wanted to be an actor. My father was a lawyer in Vienna, didn't uh, like the idea. And I, but we were very close and very friendly and he said you can do anything you want to if you would just finish some formal uh, studies. So I became an actor at the age of 17 but studied also in between engagements in various small towns in order to learn acting and became a doctor of law. I never practiced, I was never a lawyer. And then uh, by the age, when I reached the age of 19 uh, and a half, before I was even 20, I started my own theater, legitimate theater in Vienna, and I started to direct. I gave up acting and then I continued to direct and I became the successor to Max Reinhardt in his Viennese theater at the age of 26 or 7, and then a man from Hollywood came to Vienna who heard about me and met me and hired me to come here, and I then only started to learn how to make films here at 20th Century Fox. The man's name was Joseph Skenk, and I also directed, I don't want to tell you my whole life story, some plays on Broadway, and even taught in, in uh, Yale at the drama school where I worked in New York and then acted again a few Nazis at the time when it was very difficult to find Nazis in the United States. I wouldn't have this trouble now, so I don't act anymore. <laughs> and I uh, became, uh, uh, and uh, strangely, when I came here uh, to Los Angeles the first time, I was interested to see things, and I wanted to see young people. It's always, it's always I was then only 27, but it was always uh, interesting to me how young people learn or go, and I, in, uh, in I uh, enlisted here or s uh, in into a drama course that was uh, conducted by an ac actor. I even remember his name, uh, still called Antrim. And uh, naturally, I just sat in back and I didn't do much, and somehow through publicity, one day he had found out who I was. 
And he came into class and was raging mad. He, he thought I was a spy or something, and he threw me out. He said, how could I do this, you know, and not so. That was the end of my academic career yeah. in, at, the, uh, at UCLA. And do you do your own editing? Well, uh, you see, this is a very good question, and I often ask this question, whether I do my own editing. I would like to make it clear that editing is part of the director's job. You know. The editor is only there to execute what the director tells him. First of all, the director edits as he shoots. He edits in his mind. He knows exactly what he wants to use. Or maybe he gives himself a choice, and then when he looks at the film, then he tells the editor, use this angle, this uh, part of the scene here and there. The editor naturally also has a, an important uh, uh, function, like the cameraman. He, if the more sensitive and the more tuned he is to the director's wishes, the better an editor is. And also, physically, you know, there are differences in, in using two or three more frames or two or three less frames, but the director is the editor. Then, according to different contracts, it is possible that the studio or the uh, distributor comes in and makes changes, which is a question of, in my contract, I have the final uh, cut. I mean, nobody can cut anything in my films against my will, at least not uh, legally. I mean, they, they might do it behind my back when I'm not around, and, and they play the picture in, in Morocco, but I can't go to Morocco anyway. And um, it is just like, like photography. The director tells the cameraman exactly what he wants to see on the screen. The cameraman's main, uh, main uh, uh, function is to create the mood that the director wanted. But what you see, you know, the way the camera is set up is the director's and not the cameraman's uh, job to decide. Wow, okay. Hard words uh, for editors and DPs out there. I have to be honest with you. I feel like this kind of comes from another era. Uh, I don't know that Haskell Wexler or uh, Dee Dee Allen uh, are they're, 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 they're film artists themselves. I don't think that they would happily regard themselves as just a pair of hands. Nonetheless, uh, well, 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 we'll let that go, although it suggests to me that you probably don't like actors much either, or do you? No. I, I make changes on the, but see, I don't, uh, this is uh, maybe a uh, limitation that I have, you know. I don't feel that it serves any purpose to let the actor go beyond interpreting a part that is given to him, you know. I don't like an actor, and, and uh, not because I underrate necessarily the actor's talent, but the only thing is that if you start it, then there's no ending, you know. If you let an actor change his lines once, and then two weeks later when he wants to change his lines, you say, no, stop, then he will pout because he'll feel he contributed something and now you shouldn't stop him. But you might feel that if he contributes more, it'll ruin your film. It is not, uh, I don't do it, but uh, there can also be made the case for it, for a living. Right, okay, but, but what happens if an actor and you really don't like each other? Then what? It really happens uh, very rarely, and uh, I first try to persuade him, and I uh, then try, uh, perhaps, uh, it depends on the actor. You see, a director is like a teacher, you know. Sometimes 
Uh, many actors uh, are best accessible if you persuade them and if you are kind to them, which is difficult for me. And uh, other actors need to be a little shaken up. But uh, I never had it happen, but if this disagreement should really be very uh, basic and important, I would have to recast the uh, part, because uh, there is one thing about directing, which is uh, in the word, you know, it must be the director's uh, interpretation and the director's picture. The, the picture must be made for better or worse the way the director sees it. It is not a medium which has room for committee uh, decisions. Uh, I'm going to end uh, with the subject that I think we all have on our mind <laughs> pretty much all the time. You worked with Marilyn Monroe. In, uh, you directed her in The River of No Return. 10 years ago. I'm sorry, no, more like 15 years ago, isn't it? Well, anyway, uh, talk to us a little bit about Marilyn. What was she really like? Marilyn Monroe was a very nice, but she really tried very hard. She had no talent as an actress, but she had this one thing that the camera gets. She was a born star, you know, no matter what she did. For the camera, it was great. And she was a really, she was an unhappy woman. She tried hard. She wanted to be a good actress. She wanted to be educated. She married, you know, she married Arthur Miller because she wanted to learn, you know. And, and shortly after she married him, she fell in love with a, uh, an actor called. She, she was a, she could never be on time, you know. It was impossible. She, even when she was there, she was late. <laughs> yes, it, it was a, but that was part of her personality, and her personality was a star. You know, you can have many great actors, and they don't become stars in pictures, but there is a certain personality, a certain something that the camera picks up, and that's star, star quality. Well, all right, <clears throat> let's start by confessing that. Um that wasn't me interviewing Otto Preminger at age four and a half. That was that was just a dirty, filthy lie, and I don't I don't know what gets into me uh, with this stuff. <clears throat> it's a low self esteem thing. I think I need to prove that I've done something that that I haven't, and uh, I don't know if I could afford therapy again. I'd work on it. That that was just a that was just auto talking, and. Um, I, I'm sorry if I fooled you. That wasn't me at age four and a half interviewing Otto. Nonetheless, I did, in fact, uh, uh, get Otto Preminger's doormat uh, in, into my possession, and I have it. And, and that's a true story. And I'm going to tell it to you. Except first I'm going to play one more short bit of audio of, of Otto for you that, that I discovered deep in YouTube. And it's, it's quite strange. I, I think you'll enjoy it because it's just really strange. Um, and here's what it is. In the mid-70s, Otto found out that he had a son that he, by Gypsy Rose Lee, it was an illegitimate son, uh, the, the famous stripper and, of course, subject of the legendary Broadway musical, Gypsy. Uh, but Gypsy Rose Lee and Otto had an affair in the 40s. She got pregnant. She didn't. He, she didn't marry. She raised... Her son, whose name was Eric, uh, with the man who she was soon to marry, who I guess thought the kid was his. Um, Otto never saw him, except in the 19, early 1970s, Eric showed up and uh, uh, said to Otto, hey, you're my dad. 
And apparently it was a warm and wonderful kind of reunion. Um, and so he renamed himself Eric Preminger, uh, and they were very close. It's a sweet story. They uh, Eric Preminger was a writer, and so they made a movie together. Eric Preminger wrote the screenplay, auto-directed it. It's the, the Preminger's next-to-last movie. It's called Rosebud. Um, it's not very good. Uh, it was a big bomb at the time. There's actually a whole book written about its making, which is quite amusing and instructive, called Soon to be a Major Motion Picture. Um, I lent my copy of it to someone a long time ago and never got it back. Uh, anyway, um, the story, though, of Eric and Otto re-meeting each other and going on to make this film is probably a lot more interesting than the film itself. And I found an interview with the two of them on local New York television. It was a show hosted by a guy named Bill Boggs. Um, and I remember watching Bill Boggs shows in, in the in the day, and he was a funny guy. He he was he was a little obnoxious with famous people, like he goaded them a little. Uh, he was, and, and I re in fact, I remember seeing an interview with Bill Boggs doing Jerry Lewis, and I was fearful uh, about Bill Boggs's. I was fearful for his life. Uh, Jerry was not happy being on that show, and an unhappy Jerry Lewis is as bad as an unhappy Otto Preminger. Nonetheless, Otto kind of holds it together here, I think because he's being nice to his kid, and they're on TV together. Uh, and they tell the story of how they met, etc. And it takes a few minutes, and I think you'll enjoy it. And then I'm going to tell you how I wound up with Otto's doormat in my possession. Welcome to Wednesday and welcome to Midday Live and we have with us at this point Otto and Eric Preminger, very unique father and son who have never really appeared together in this context, uh, context before to discuss the uniqueness of their relationship. We'll get into that in just a moment. Uh, also on today's show we have Stanley Evans with an eye test for children and it's a very important thing. And also uh, all struggling writers can identify with Mara Wilson who will be with us in a few minutes who is the little man against the big publishing houses. Later in the show we have a debate. The local environmentalists are really up in arms in East Brunswick, New Jersey because of a bicentennial park that is uh, being built there and they're tearing down a great many trees. But right now Otto Preminger and Eric Preminger, unique a father and son who have not really appeared publicly before to discuss the nature of their relationship. Eric uh, was Otto's son, born out of wedlock uh, to Gypsy Rose Lee. Until recently, this wasn't really public knowledge, and the relationship was kept at a distance, but a few years back, Otto acknowledged it and adopted Eric. And we welcome you. Thank you for coming. You act as though I did him a favor. <laughs> Do you realize how long I had to ask him until he let me adopt him? Well, let's find out about it because... Uh, He's a I, very difficult man. He, er, your son is a very. difficult man? Yeah. It's hereditary. It runs in the family. <laughs> I have some, you know, I am at this point not at the least bit like the rest of the world, an expert on, you, on your relationship, and I'd like to ask some basic questions. Please. Eric, when did you first find out that Otto Preminger was your dad? Well, actually, when I was 17 years old, uh, I found out from the man who I thought had been my father. Did he know all along that Otto was... No. Nobody knew who my father was, except for my mother. And, and his father. And, you. and you, that's, who was you? <laughs> but, but I didn't, didn't know, know that know, you knew. Right. Anyway, right. I didn't know who it was. And my mother was living in California, and I was living in New York. And I was 17 and having a wonderful time. And my mother didn't quite approve. And one day during one of our 
really big fights when she was sort of like telling me that I had to straighten up. I sort of said, well, you know, my father isn't even really my father. And she said, that's not true. And 24 hours later, she arrived in New York. And we're sitting there, and we're talking about it. And I said, well, who is my father? And she says, it's none of your business. <laughs> Eric, during that 24-hour period, were you starting to wonder who it could be? I mean, were you like, you know, well, geez, it could be this, it could be that. What were you thinking? Well, I was really thinking of how I could possibly arrange a raise in my allowance out of the whole thing. <laughs> it was really all I cared about. <laughs> Financial considerations only. So then what happened? Well, then she told me, under the agreement that I would never contact Otto until he contacted me. Mm -hmm. And so I waited, and then I went into the Army, and but I told a lot of other people. You see, she didn't make me promise that. And eventually word got to Otto that I knew, and he called my mother, and then my mother said it was okay, and we got together in now Paris. Now, may I say something? Otto, if you don't Which say something he doesn't now, know. What? I learned at one point that he was my son. I had no idea until I arrived in New York on the 11th of December, 1944. I was at that time living in California, and his mother was living here. Yes. His mother, by the way, was a charming, wonderful yes. woman. But, and I called her up, you know, because she, I didn't know what, where she was. And, she, and the maid said she's in the hospital. So I called her at the hospital, and she said this morning at 6 o'clock, we had a son. So you, I, you and Gypsy Rose Lake yeah. had a son, right? So I bought flowers, went to the hospital, and offered naturally to support him. I didn't know how much he would eat. Were you <laughs> married at the time? No. But she was married to someone else? Not anymore. She was S separated. I, I don't know if she... Anyway, she yeah. said that she wants this son only for herself. She has enough money to support him. She doesn't want anybody to come in. She doesn't want him ever to know who his father well, it was her son. I, I couldn't do anything about <laughs> it. It was her it. call at that point. And she I, had him. And, and I said, could I come and visit him? And yeah. she said, anytime you want to, you can come and visit him. And the first three years or so, I used to come and visit him here. He, uh, <coughs> She had a house very close where I live now, on 63rd Street. And he was playing, you know, and I brought him some toys. But he was very young. And then Gypsy got married again. Uh, Eric, I want to ask you a question. Do you have any memories from the age one, two, or three, of a very large head. None. Looking down at you, smiling at you. You don't remember None. any visits what from I, Otto? What I do have, though, which is very interesting, is that my mother used to be a home movie aficionado. And once she brought me and visited Otto in a house that he had in Bel Air, California. And I have a photograph of you by the swimming pool. You were already bald. <laughs> I was bald when I was 23. <laughs> and if you w would not be <coughs> so sly, and would turn the back of your head to the camera, <laughs> then we would know that you are also slightly bald. Yes, well, <laughs> listen, being a man who's I very afraid of becoming bald, I'm not going to ask you to do that. So no, leave the back you of your head. You don't have anything to worry about. May I who say knows? something? Yes. I have just finished writing my autobiography. You have? Yeah. And I don't think we should continue this conversation about Gypsy and Eric and me. We should talk about other things. Eric today is a rather intelligent man. He is working you know, in the same business, the same profession. I am working with a lot of things to discuss, but this thing I would like to save for the people who will buy my autobiography. <laughs> save because it it's called, all in your autobiography? Yeah, it's all in there. It's called Preminger and Autobiography, and it will be appearing in September. You know, Doubleday is publishing it. All right. May I just ask Eric one or two questions? 
Yeah, but he don't give away it. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what? Well, I, they I'm, won't I'm, buy the book. It's just that we've left one or two things hanging. We won't go beyond how, a couple of basic things. When you learned that Otto Preminger was your father, I'm interested in a few things. First, what were your preconceptions about the man Otto Preminger? Then all of a sudden, one day, you find out that man who is a public figure is your dad. How did you react to that? Well, uh, I really didn't have a lot of a big picture on who Otto was. And I went out to sort of gather information. I remember the first bit of information I got was that he yells a lot. Yelling. Right. See? And then the first time <laughs> See we See how, how people lie about me, how they malign me? Uh -huh. I actually whisper. Boy, I haven't... Uh, I'm a whisperer. This is the third time you've been on the show, and you have haven't... Have really I ever yelled? Once, yes. You did yell one time <laughs> at the show. At one. At a man who was sitting over here talking about censorship. Not only did you no, yell, but no. you turned red. I did not yell. <laughs> well, you raised Maybe your I voice. This man had the nerve to say that movies need censorship. All right. Well, but I think the most important thing that we have in this country is the freedom of expression. For sure. As long as we have it, we cannot have a dictatorship. And this man looked like a little dictator. Mm -hmm. I think he was even connected with some censorship body. He was. <laughs> he was. Oh, he, he, listen, he deserved everything you gave him. Then why didn't There's you give no me a today? I mean, between Arig and me, we could have beaten him up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm sure. Do you inherit, do you, do you, now that, just pursuing this line, when you found that Otto was your father, did you start saying, well, now I understand why I have this tendency to walk around and speak with a German accent? Or <laughs> now I understand no. why. No. Excuse me. And I don't even raise What are you referring to? Who has a German accent? Well, the public thinks you have a German no, I'm accent. I'm an Austrian, and I have a slight Austrian Just a slight. Color. Yeah, except, you know, when he's in Paris, and he gets into a cab, and he's practicing his French, the cab drivers always answer him in German. <laughs> that's very funny. I think that's very funny. Otto, we have we have to take a commercial break. I wonder, will you practice your French and say uh, we'll return right after this, or we will be right? Nous allons retourner au revenir dans deux minutes. Achtung! Right after this. will be fun because you said you wanted to hear the story of why I have Otto Preminger's doormat. Okay, so here we go. Um, it's 1994. The Clinton administration is in for a while. The, the, the internet, it's not a going thing yet. It was still called the World Wide Web and nobody had it. Uh, I'm living in New York City and uh, I used to wander around the Upper East Side and I was aware that Otto Preminger had lived in the brownstone that was at 129 East 64th Street between Park and Lexington Avenue. Uh, now, he had passed away, in, uh, I think in 1986, uh, but uh, the, the house was deserted as far as I could tell. It, it had never been sold. It looked like it was empty. Um, and I used to pass by it, and there were a couple of no noticeable things about that, that house that I, I was always intrigued by. One was I had found out that it was once a, um, an old-fashioned brownstone, and that when he bought it in the early 60s, he had all the ornamentation removed, he stripped it down to its essentials, and he created a very modern new house. He had it painted white. It was, it was completely plain. He had a fifth-story, big, double-height screening room added on. Uh, and it was quite stark 
and imposing. It, it kind of looked like him. It was a it was a big square bald house. It looked like Otto, you know. And and it, the front door was black. It had a little uh, white uh, print on the front door that said one two nine East Sixty Fourth Street. And I remember thinking, and I eventually looked it up. I was right. The lettering was Saul Bass designed lettering. Now you probably know if you're listening to this podcast who Saul Bass is. Brilliant designer, graphic artist, production designer. He designed all of the magnificent posters for Preminger's films, and I could tell by the lettering that Saul Bass had put those little letters on for him on the black door. Also underneath the, the, the door on the pavement, though, was a doormat. A big, heavy, black rubber doormat with the letter P in white on it for Preminger, we think. Uh, we hope. So I used to wander by, and I wondered, there's no one in the house. What's going to become of this house? When's it going to be sold? What are they going to do with it once it's been sold? And what's that doormat doing there? Like, who's going to get that doormat? It's it's Otto Preminger's doormat. And one day I wandered by, and I kind of slid to the house, and I kicked the doormat a little, and I found that it was not nailed into the pavement. It just curled up. It was just sitting there. Presumably for 25 years. It just, they laid it down and nobody touched it. So I had this idea. I, I, I was like, I, of all the things you can own, a poster, an old script, an inscribed book, what if I actually owned Otto Preminger's doormat, or at least possessed it? Um, uh, like I said, the house seemed empty. I figured it's going to get thrown away somehow if no one's claimed it by now. But it was a robbery that I was considering. Now, I'm not like a guy who robs stuff. I, I fear authority. I don't, uh, you know, I don't do police. Uh, I don't really get a big thrill out of doing anything illegal. So I didn't really want to do this on my own. But I had a friend named Pete. I'm not going to tell you his last name. Um, Pete lived near me, and I told him about this idea. And and I I had a feeling he was the right guy for this. He He was... He was a well-off enough fellow, but he was kooky. He wanted a little release. He wanted to do something a little strange, and he loved the idea. He said, we can do this. In fact, he kind of upped the game, and he said, uh, this is something we do in broad daylight. We don't do this at night. If you do it at night and we're caught, we're thieves. If we do it in the at 2 in the afternoon, who's going to think we're stealing anything? We're just doing this. And I agreed with him. I said, let's do it. So we made a plan. Uh, it involved us meeting on the corner of Park and 75th, 10 blocks away. We each had a shopping bag. It was important that we each had shopping bags, and they were kind of designer bags in different colors. Mine was blue, I think, and his was red. We hailed a cab. We told the cab our destination. We said there's two destinations. We're going to 64th between Park and Lex, where we have to Picked something up, we said, and then we're going to go to 59th and Lex, which is where the subway was that we would eventually just get on and we'd go home with our with our stash. So we get in the cab. He stops at 64th between Park and Lex in front of Preminger's house. And uh, uh, I just completely, you know, I was just chicken shit. I couldn't do it. And I was like, Pete, just go do it. Like, hurry up. He knew that. He knew that's why he was there. So he gets out of the cab. Uh, he goes up to the Preminger house, 
And he leans down and examines the mat, and he really slows things down. And I'm, like, just dying in the back of the cab. And I know he's doing this just to, like, mess with me. He, Pete, like, looked at it. He, he rolled it up a little bit. He turned it around and examined it. He held it up in the air to see if there was any, like, sunlight coming through it. Was it good rubber? Was it, you know? And I was just going, like, get in the car, get in the car. No, he, he took his time. He eventually carefully rolled it up. I'm sweating bullets, and he puts it in his bag, uh, in his colored bag, and, and gets in the car. Now, I have to tell you that on the way down, it was very important for me to establish a big alibi in case the cab driver uh, was called, you know, once this crime was found out and we were all put on trial. I, I needed the, the cab driver to have an alibi. So I made up this whole monologue before we got there. I said that I was a designer, that we were on our way to 59th Street, and that was my office. Uh, the, 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 the doormat was something we needed to pick up because I had designed it for the people who lived there. And they said, well, we're out and we're in Long Island for the weekend, so you should pick it up. And I, I, it was a whole insane thing that I came up with for the cab driver who probably didn't speak English. But I just wanted to make sure that it was established that there was a real reason that we were picking this doormat up. And so Pete got it. He put it in the bag. We got to uh, 59th and Lex. And uh, we both went down to the subway, but that subway has an underpass. So you can go uptown or downtown. And we chose it for that reason. We both went under to, to the subway. We then switched the, the doormat from one bag to another. And then he took the uptown and I crossed over and went downtown. Now, anybody following us would be thoroughly confused. It had changed bags. We had changed directions. We'd worked this out in advance. I decide to go down to the village and turn around and come back up. We've thrown the people following us off the scent of the people who robbed Otto Preminger's doormat. So I go down to 14th Street and uh, I decide, you know, let me get a little air. I don't have to get right on the train. And I wander around a little bit. And it's so nice being in the village. And I decide, let me get a copy of the Village Voice. Let me look at what's going on around here. Let me sit in Washington Square Park. Uh, And I do. And I'm reading the voice, and I'm looking at what's playing in in local movie theaters. And at Film Forum, the great revival theater, I see that an Otto Preminger film is showing. And the Otto Preminger film that is showing is Where the Sidewalk Ends. And at this point, I know Otto Preminger is looking on and he is cackling with me at what I've done. He's even encouraging me in his mischievous way from the beyond. Go see my where the sidewalk ends. It ends in front of my house and you have my doormat and now go see my movie. So I thought, what the hell? I made sure that that doormat was in carefully secured in my colored bag And uh, I went to see Where the Sidewalk Ends at Film Forum. It's not a great film, R. It's a Dana Andrews. It's a thing. It's a, but anyway, but it was just hilarious because it was really like me and Otto Preminger's doormat and Otto together watching the movie. Uh, So the movie ends. By now, you know, it's dark. It's five o'clock has come and I'm I'm in the village. And um, I start to think, 
it 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 might be time to go home and and just get this afternoon over with. Right? Let me let me let me just hit it. I've had good luck. No one's traced me. I'm pretty sure by now. So I get on the number six train. I go up to 77th Street, Lexington Avenue. I'm prepared to stroll home pr- proudly with my 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 catch my my rubber doormat with the letter P on it. And as I get out on Lexington Avenue and I head uh, west towards Park, I start to see policemen. And not just a couple of policemen, I see a bunch of policemen and they all appear to be right in front of me, kind of looking at me. And I'm heading towards Park Avenue and as I look around, there are more policemen. There, there's just a lot of cops. And I'm holding on to my bag with Otto's doormat. And have you ever had one of these dreams where something so awful is happening to you that you actually can tell yourself in the dream, oh, the hell with it, this is just a dream. This can't be happening. And you just kind of force yourself out of the, the dream. So I told myself that. I was like, this is not happening. This is a dream. Only the dream didn't stop. The more I walked, the more cops there were, and they were all looking at me. So I just keep soldiering on to 75th Street, which is my block. And I notice when I get there, many, many more cops and a big wooden wall has been constructed in front of my street. You can't enter my street. Hundreds of cops surrounding my block at this point. I decide to go around the block and see if I can enter on Madison. I go around the block and there are another several hundred cops and another big wooden fence. So I figure the best thing to do is just try to melt into the crowd. I stand around for a while wondering when I'm going to get busted. I got Otto's thing in my hand. I got the I got the bag with his with his doormat, and finally the moment happens, and a cop looks at me and he says, "Okay." I said, "What?" And he goes, "You." I go, "What?" And he looks down at my bag, and he looks up at me, and he says, "Do you have any ID?" And I said, "Yeah." Why? And he goes, "Do you live here?" And I was about to say no, but for some reason I said, y- y- yeah. And he said, well, let me see your ID. So I shakily pull out my, my license and he looks at it and it's got the address on it. And he goes, okay, you're, you're fine. You can be let in in a few minutes. And I said, well, what, what's going on? And he says, Clinton. Clinton? He says, yeah. And he had a disgusting look on his face, and he says, Yeah, that bastard's in town screwing us all up. And it turns out that Bill Clinton was on my block in, in the building on the corner of 75th and Park at a fundraiser. It wasn't me and Otto. It had nothing to do with the doormat. It was Bill Clinton and a fundraiser that was blocking me and I did wait a little bit and they let me in and I got home and I I went into the closet and I buried the doormat as deeply as I could in the back I put all kinds of things in front of it so that I never 
had to think about this again. And it was then that I knew that, in fact, Otto Preminger was with me. He was cackling at having completely screwed up my evening. And uh, he virtually guaranteed that I would never, ever reveal to anyone that I had stolen his doormat. Except now, 25 years later, I am revealing it. The doormat sits about 30 feet away from where I am right now. It has the letter P on it in capitals. And if I turn it around, it the lowercase letter is D for my last name. Preminger, uppercase, DeFolita, lowercase. I think Otto would have liked that as well. If you enjoyed listening to Movies Till Dawn, you can visit my blog where I post videos related to the subjects that I interview. Just go to moviestilldawn.blogspot.com. You can find this podcast at moviestilldawnpodcast.com, but we're also available on most of your favorite podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Spotify, and YouTube. I would love to hear from you. If you're inspired to reach out, you can email me at moviestilldawnpodcast at gmail.com. And please feel free to follow me on Twitter at RealRDEF. That's R-E-E-L-R-D-E-F. And if you have a film geek in your life, or even just a mildly curious fan, spread the word that we're here. <laughs>